So as I was researching for this sermon, I came across a quote and a commentary that I'd like to uh, open with because it was just so salient. Commenting on this passage in Genesis 25, 19 through 34, this is what the commentator writes. He says, Jacob agreed to sell Esau some stew in exchange for Esau's birthright. The birthright belonged to the eldest son, even if born just seconds before his brother. Usually the birthright consisted of a double portion, so two-thirds of the inheritance, and on the death of the father, leadership of the family. In this case, though, the birthright meant more. The promise and covenant made with Abraham passed on to Isaac was now the birthright of one of Isaac's children, Esau. But Esau had such low regard for his birthright that he sold it for a kettle of stew. End quote. Friends, Esau had been given an enormous, unbelievable gift. And not due to anything that he did, but because he happened to be born first by a matter of seconds. So as the older son, Esau could expect to receive two-thirds of the inheritance, while Jacob would receive only one. So two-thirds of a massive estate which God had helped Abraham, his grandfather, amass over many years. And not only this, but Esau would become the new leader of the family once Isaac died. The new leader of the family through whom God would bless the world. Esau then had been given something remarkable. Yet he gave it up for a bowl of stew. What about you, friends? What about you? Believers like Esau have been given an enormous, unbelievable gift. And it's not due to anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Because we identify with Jesus, because we trust in Him, we can expect to receive much, much more than Esau. Eternal life, new creation, communion with God Himself. As believers, we won't just become leaders of one family like Esau, but we'll sit on thrones ruling all of creation, Christ says. This is our birthright, our new birth right, as it were. Will we give it up for a bowl of stew? Now, to be clear this morning, I am not proposing a theology that claims that you either can or can't lose your salvation. No. Salvation, friends, isn't a a thing, an object to acquire or possess and then possibly lose later on. I think our culture of private ownership, consumerism has influenced this idea. Salvation, rather, is something in which we participate, something we experience as long as we're connected to Jesus. 
And the full benefits of that salvation aren't experienced until Christ returns at the end of days. So salvation isn't a thing to be had like a bowl of stew. It's a future experience connected to a birthright. A birthright. This birthright, though, which is ours as long as we're connected to Jesus, is being threatened on all fronts today. The world, in other words, is putting stew before us. All kinds of stew. Will we, like Esau, choose the stew? That is the question that I want to ponder this morning. And so in just a moment, we're going to open the text together and examine it verse by verse. But before we do that, friends, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, Jesus, forever and ever. Be with us this morning, please. Amen. Well, I invite you, friends, to turn with me, if you haven't already, to Genesis 25. That's where we'll be this morning. Genesis 25, verses 19 through 34. We'll be reading from the ESV, which is the version of the Pew Bible. And so as you turn there, uh, Abraham at this point, actually, he has died. And now we are looking at the generations of Isaac, his son. Next week, we'll look at the generations of Jacob, Isaac's son, whose story, I think, takes up really the rest of Genesis. So Genesis 25, we'll do 19 through 34. And as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's word? These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. 
When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You may be seated. Well, you'll want your Bibles close by because we are going to just take this verse by verse, friends. What an iconic passage in the Old Testament. One of the most significant texts in the book of Genesis. Our passage begins in verse 19. And so the beginning of verse 19 begins with this refrain. These are the generations of Isaac. This phrase, these are the generations of, it's just one word in Hebrew, toledot. And I I say it aloud because this has been identified by many as the basic structuring device of the book of Genesis. So in Genesis, we see this phrase ten times, and always at critical points in the story. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, chapter 2. These are the generations of Noah, chapter 6. These are the generations of Terah, chapter 11. And these are the generations of Isaac, chapter 25. The narrator of Genesis is thus signaling to his readers that we're now leaving the story of Abraham proper and are turning to that of his son. These are the generations of Isaac. Well, if you keep going in the second half of verse 19 and then verse 20, we get a a summary of the generations of Isaac. So this is a kind of zoomed out version of the the very detailed, dramatic story we read last week. You remember with the servant of Abraham who journeys to find a spouse for his son Isaac. After this frame, this brief introduction, we're plunged into the details of Isaac's life in verse 21. And those details, of course, friends, include children. Yahweh's promise promise to Abraham was that he'd be the father of many nations. Remember that? That his descendants would go on to bless the world. That promise, though, depends on children. And given the critical importance of children in God's promise to Abraham, it is striking to see so much barrenness, barrenness among his descendants. Now, I'm nervous to say this, friends, but it's almost like God designed it that way, causing them not to take childbirth for granted and to to depend on him alone to open the womb 
each time. This is no exception to that. Isaac, the son of promise, whose descendants would bless the entire world, waits 20 years, 20 years before seeing a son. If you move to verse 22, we see that it's not just one son, but two. Two. And now with with all the children mentioned in Scripture, and I, I won't even pretend to know the number, I'm sure someone knows it, I, for one, am shocked to see how few twins there are in the Bible. And I, for one, should be interested in such a thing as a a twin dad. In the 66 books, 1,200 verses, 1,200 chapters, 31,000 verses, 31,000, which make up our Bibles, we meet only really two and a half sets of twins. So there's Perez and Zerah. You may have never heard of them, but they're born to Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. They're twins. Then there's the disciple Thomas, whose twin we never actually meet, but who's mentioned in John chapter 11 and 20. And then the only other set of twins is, of course, Jacob and Esau in Genesis 25. Now, you will find a couple mentions of twins elsewhere, but it's in the Song of Songs, referring to twin sheep and gazelle in poetry, and then those, the twin gods that are carved into Paul's ship in the book of Acts, but that's it. Genesis 25, verse 22 here, it begins with the children struggled together within her. Now, friends, this is a, a very striking detail because we haven't been directly told that Rebecca is carrying twins. So reading the story slowly and attending to every detail would cause any alert reader, I think, to perk up at this moment. The children. The children. And moving to Rebecca, thinking the pregnancy would end her life, she says, why, why is this happening to me? In other words, Lord, if you have blessed me with a child, why are you sending me to the grave through it? Rebecca is confused. She's been waiting for a child for 20 years, assuming she wanted one. And now God finally opens her womb, and it seems that this will be the end of her, and possibly the end of the children as well. So with this question, Rebecca then, it says, went to inquire of the Lord, a technical term, which means that she probably requested formally God's response at some sacred place nearby. Immediately in verse 23, it says that the Lord answers Rebekah in what Genesis has to record as poetry. This is a short poem. In verse 23, we read, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So Rebecca is told here that she's having twins, which explains some of the pain that she was uh, experiencing 
If you want a narrative about this, feel free to ask Danielle. Uh, She'll tell you all about it. Not only is she having twins, though, but such twins will become warring nations who resist one another. I got the same vision about Willa and Reed. It's going to happen someday. Just kidding. The younger, it says, contrary to custom and practice, the younger will rule over the older. And now we're just talking about a matter of seconds here, but, but the order of birth is still significant. I think God's promise to Abraham is clearly in view here, friends. He says, I will make you the father of many nations. And here Rebecca is told that from her womb will arise two of those nations. And that they'll resist one another as she is already painfully aware. Well, moving on to verse 24, it says that when her days to give birth were completed, which is quite a feat to go full term with twins, behold, there were twins in her womb, we're told explicitly. Verse 25, it says, the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. The word for hairy in Hebrew is sa'ad, Esau, sa'ad. And then in verse 26, Esau's brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah bore them. So in these few verses, friends, we're told a number of details We're told how long Isaac and Rebekah waited for children, 20 years. We're explicitly told that they're having twins. And we're given their names, their general appearance, their order of birth, which of course is significant. Esau, the technically firstborn, came out, it says, red, his body like a hairy cloak. And Jacob, the Younger, by a matter of seconds, came out with his hand holding his brother's heel. So that name Esau in Hebrew is very similar to the word for hairy. And so he's named after one of his earliest, most notable traits. But Jacob's name, Yaakov, is related to the word for heel, Akev. Yaakov, Akev. And so his name is associated with one of his most early, most telling acts. Grasping his brother's heel, trying to exit the womb first. Well, the story continues in quick succession, really, in verse 27, where all these years are clumped into one phrase, when the boys grew up. And so we're transported from the delivery room to the young adulthood of the two brothers. And it then says that Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, continuing to characterize the two boys. While Jacob, his brother, was a quiet man dwelling in tents. There's a contrast here. So Esau is the firstborn He's red of skin, hairy all over, and he likes to hunt and spend time outdoors. You probably fit in here in Maine, right? Sorry. Jacob is the second born, and 
Presumably, he's fair of skin, prefers tents, and he's either plain, still, quiet, or civilized. It's really hard to translate that word. But Jacob left the womb, it says, remember, grasping his brother's heel. The characterization goes on in verse 28, where we learn that this family is not that healthy. Isaac, it says, loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We're given a reason, then, for Isaac's preference of Esau, but Rebekah's love of Jacob is left unexplained. I also think that Esau's status as the firstborn helped win him the favor of his father. Jacob, however, is shrouded in mystery. That action of grasping Esau's heel is kind of enigmatic. It's hard to know if we're to interpret that as a virtue or a vice. And the word translated quiet in the ESV could mean innocent, plain, calm, having moral integrity. The way that I think of it is with Esau, what you see is what you get. Whereas with Jacob, there's a lot going on beneath the surface, right? Now, with all of these crucial details established, we then launch into the main event of our passage, which is, of course, the story with the stew. Now, no stew for you, I just have to say. uh, There is a TV show featuring a man named Jerry Seinfeld, uh, and there's a character who says, no soup for you. Um... It must be that that show is in my subconscious because it made its way into the title, Uh, but but I didn't intend on that, and so if you want more details, ask me after, but I figured I would name it. Uh, The sermon's not named after that character. Okay, so verse 29 is where we get into this story about the stew, a very significant stew, and it says that once when Jacob was cooking stew... Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. Now, friends, I can't help but think here of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. So in that story, we have two brothers born close together, not twins, both vying for the approval of their father, their heavenly father. And that story, too, includes food. (laughs) Back to Genesis 25, though, what's significant here is that Esau is the one known for his culinary creations, not Jacob. But Jacob, knowing Esau's penchant for cooking and his love of tasty food, it's like he uses his brother's skill or weakness against him. And he makes some stew. So Esau says, coming in from the field, and remember the field in Genesis 4, the field where Cain gets his offering, the field where he goes on to murder his brother. When Esau came in from the field, after hunting for his father who loves him more than Jacob, he says to his brother in verse 30, 
Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. That's what it says in the ESV. But friends, in Hebrew, the language is much less civilized, you could say. Now Esau literally says, this is just a word-for-word translation, let me swallow some red red, some red red, struggling to form coherent speech. And friends, the word for swallow, it's the only time this word occurs in the Hebrew Bible. And in other sources, it refers to cattle slurping food from a trough and the kind of noise that it makes. Just like that. The word for red, friends, in Hebrew is pronounced Adom. And so that's why the author says at this point, therefore his name was called Edom. Edom would become a nation, really the nation that would emerge from Esau, and it existed to the east of Israel. And Israel and Edom would war against each other for centuries. But back to this scene, picturing Esau coming in from the field, this rugged huntsman, the firstborn, favored by their father. He's famished and can hardly form a coherent sentence. And then there's Jacob, cool, collected, might I say cunning, The son loved by his mother, but not his father. He says in verse 31, sell me your birthright now. Your birthright. The right Esau has to two-thirds of the inheritance. Two-thirds of all the property, livestock, servant amassed by Abraham. The right he has to sole leadership of the family once Isaac has died. He says, sell me your birthright and all that goes with it. And then, then, I'll let you swallow some red red, my brother. It's like Jacob never took his hand off of Esau's heel. Always grasping seeking to supplant his elder brother. And friends, what does Esau say to this in verse 32? He says, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Focused only on the present, and I would say dramatizing the present at that. Esau lets go of two-thirds of the estate and leadership of the family through whom God would bless the world, all for a bowl of stew. Now, to make sure that this is binding, the crafty Jacob says in verse 33, swear to me on oath, swear to me now. And at this stage, historically, a verbal oath between brothers would have legally transferred the birthright from Esau to Jacob. And oaths like this were taken very, very seriously. So it says Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then lastly, in verse 34, Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. 
His craftiness and cunning is shrouded in acts of hospitality. And Esau, it says, ate and drank and rose and went his way. Can you think of anyone else in the Bible who ate and drank and rose like this? When I first read this, friends, I, I couldn't help but feel that there was some other text that featured those three verbs in close succession. After the people of Israel are liberated from Egypt in Exodus, God appears to Moses on Sinai. And friends, when Moses takes a while to come back down, the people convince his brother Aaron to build an idol, a golden calf for them to worship. In Exodus 32, it says that the people of Israel sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And what's even more striking about this parallel is that the word translated play is Yitzchak, which is elsewhere translated as laugh or Isaac, the name Isaac. Now, in that text, the play has been described as idolatry and various pagan practices, immorality. And so in the same overarching story, Genesis and Exodus being like two volumes, like Luke and Acts, we have the same progression of verbs, ate, drank, rose. Esau, in Genesis 25, chooses present pleasure over a promised future. And Israel in Exodus does the exact same thing. Well, the final clause in our passage sums up Esau's actions. And it may sound redundant to us, but I think that the narrator needs to say it point blank. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Like Esau, Christians today are being asked to give up our birthright. But what stew is being set before us today? What stew? There's a wonderful little book by a man named James K.A. Smith. Some of you may have read it. It's called You Are What You Love. There's a copy in the church library. And I actually gave this book to our graduating seniors this year uh, because it is just so helpful in navigating Christian life today. The world, Smith writes, is competing tirelessly for our affection. He says human beings aren't just thinkers we're lovers. We love. This means that our emotions, our desires, our affections are powerful forces in human life. And they're the target of constant manipulation by others. Marketing agencies, media organizations, political causes, even religious groups vying for our heart for our love 
And in all of this, Smith says that story, the idea of a narrative or story is powerful. And in America, there's no story more powerful than the American dream. And so he talks about it in his book. He says, we live in a land of promise, freedom, opportunity, where we can make of ourselves whatever we'd like, says the story. We can start from humble beginnings, from another country even, come here and work hard and be happy. The story is rarely articulated so directly, but friends, it's, it's lurking, it's spreading in our schools, our community centers, even in our churches. I think nearly every American today, in one way or another, is pursuing this dream, this hope. But this dream, if left unchecked, let me say that, if left unchecked, can become the stew that we choose over our birthright. If left unchecked, it will move us to choose career development, financial success, A picture-perfect family over Jesus. Over Jesus. Now, I am not here to discourage you this morning. That's not my aim. But to inspire you, hopefully, to say no. To say no to such glittery hopes. No to such recipes for happiness, no to such dreams of fulfillment, no to such bowls of stew. Instead, look to Jesus, the humble, unsuccessful, persecuted till the end Jesus, The Jesus who was offered all the world's kingdoms, all authority and power, all fame and glory, and who said no. Clinging to his birthright as redeemer and savior of the world, Jesus said no. This morning I urge you to do the same. Friends, the world sees our hunger as we come in from the field. It sees our hunger for meaning, purpose, identity, all of it. And it targets that hunger with stew after stew after stew. This morning then, let's link arms in the cause of Christ And let's together say a resounding no to the world's kettle of stew. Let there be no stew for you. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the freedoms that are offered in this country and the fact that we can openly confess you and not face persecution. But Lord, I do pray that the narrative that is swirling in this country, which can do a lot of good, I pray that it wouldn't become 
a golden calf, that it wouldn't become a kettle of stew, that we would prefer the narrative of Jesus, your kingdom, which begins like a mustard seed, a kingdom, a stone that's rejected. Lord, that we would band together as disciples, saying no to whatever stew the world offers, and saying yes to you, Jesus, every day. Give us faith, give us fidelity, and give us endurance to stay the course together. And we love you and thank you so much for being with us and helping us along the way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.